Hear that? Believe it or not, summer is just around the corner. Luckily, Armorall, America's most trusted auto appearance brand, has what your car needs to get that perfect summer shine. Plus, now through May 31st, we'll give you $5 for every $20 you spend on Armorall products. That means car wash pods, protectant, tire shine, you name it. Find out how to get your $5 rebate at Armorall.com. Armorall, less work, more clean. Terms apply. Get ready for the greatest roast of all time the Roast of Tom Brady, a Netflix live event happening May 5th. Hosted by Kevin Hart, the seven-time world champion gets his cleats held to the fire by famous friends and frenemies on an unforgettable night where everything is fair game. Tune in on May 5th at 5 p.m. Pacific time for The Roast of Tom Brady, live only on Netflix. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Mary redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18+. plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. It's the Autosport Podcast. We ask why Formula E is attracting so many manufacturers and review the 2017-18 season. has certainly been massively in the news recently with a host of manufacturers committing to it some very big names and also a thrilling championship finale in which Lucas Degrassi nicked the title off Sebastian Buemi at the last with a pretty disastrous double header for the Renault driver in Montreal so we thought it was a good time to have a little bit of a look back at the season and ask a little bit about why Formula E is proving to be so successful so we've uh, assembled a, a star-studded panel to, to discuss it of Formula E specialists, both on and off track. My name is Ed Straw, the editor-in-chief of Autosport. So first up, Nicky Shields, Formula E presenter, pit lane reporter, also science communicator, great white shark with swimmer, if that's the right terminology. You can tell I've, been, I've just been looking at your website. Uh, exactly. Is that a quick Wikipedia? Yes. <laughs> but currently at the moment, yeah, exactly. Been part of Formula E since the very beginning, if we can cast our memories back to. I think it was the first Michelin tyre test that we did at the Circuit du Soir back in, it was, I think it was like May 2014. Um, and have followed the uh, Formula E family slash circus all around the world, um, working as the pit lane reporter at all the races. So it's been a, a pretty awesome three years. 
What's more dangerous, sharks or angry Sebastian Buemi? Well, I, I think we're going to have to go for it. It depends if Daniel Abd is standing in the way in between, in between the two of you, because, you know, I'd feel quite confident as long as he's there to defend. <laughs> and we also have a driver who's had a very short Formula E career so far, but a, a pretty successful one, Alex Lynn, who did a, a one-off, well, a two-off, really, in, in New York for DS Virgin and took pole on, on debut. So you've shown you're pretty good at this Formula E lark. So are we going to see a bit more of you? in electric vehicle racing in the, in the coming years? Well, I certainly hope so. I've, in, I've enjoyed my time in, well, short short but sweet time in Formula E. But I've sort of been around since January, really working pretty much full-time for the DS Virgin team in a reserve and test driver role. And then, yeah, getting my first chance in New York was a lot of fun and hopefully I get more opportunities. From what you've seen, definitely merited to be out there. And there's plenty of drives yet to be confirmed, so... Uh, even though I'm sure you won't be drawn on it, there's uh, there's lots of opportunities. And we've also got Autosports Formula E correspondent Scott Mitchell, who has been following the throws of the season. Obviously, he's been compiling his season review and a top 10 drivers in the Autosport review, which we'll be having a little bit of a look at later on. How's it been for you, Scott? Yeah, it's been a very interesting season of Formula E. I almost feel like I'm a really poor quality hybrid of our, of our two guests here. I'm a very mediocre racing driver and a mediocre podcast guest so you know i've got both both bases covered there in terms of average performances so um hopefully i'm uh, i can live up to their live up to their standard over the next hour or so but you do have the longest hair out of uh, all of us how long is that if if it was down not quite shoulders but i i, I think i have a i have a haircut that is suitable for a podcast so no one sees you we'll leave it yeah, at exactly that right, yeah. but i will be uh tweeting and instagramming a photo of the, the the crew so if you do want to go you can see scott's hair Head to Twitter. It's also Scott's charity hair, isn't it? I've got a, a Just Giving page, justgiving.com slash scottmitchell92. I'm basically, I, I'm growing my hair, uh, cutting it off when it's long enough, donating it to the Little Princesses Trust, which um, makes real hair wigs for kids who have cancer and other illnesses that have made them lose their hair. It's growing extremely slowly. I've been doing this for, I've been doing this since last November, December, and it is still far from being long enough. So maybe by the time we've, we're doing next season's Formula E Season Review podcast, I'll actually have um, much shorter hair than this because I've finally been able to have shaved it off. Well, you've got a bit of competition because you know Steph Blenders, who is the CNN Supercharged producer, the CNN Supercharged show is all about formulary. Her daughter has done exactly that. She managed to chop off, I think it was about eight inches. Sounds like you've been beaten to it, Scott. When we're looking at Formula E, uh, getting a, getting away from the, the, the haircut, well, incidentally, you did describe yourself as a poor hybrid. We don't want any more poor hybrid talk in this Formula E podcast, please. Manufacturers, Porsche and Mercedes announcing they're in. We've got Renault involved, Jaguar, BMW involved with Andretti. Audi with at Schaeffler, we've got Venturi, Faraday Future next to these emerging manufacturers. Why is Formula E becoming the go-to place for, for manufacturers, do we think? Why is it being so successful? Yes, it has been so successful as a racing championship. But I think you just have to look at the wider picture of what is going on in the automotive industry. You know, the fact that the UK, for example, they're banning internal combustion engine cars from 2040. Uh, we've got the likes of Volvo saying they're not going to be producing them from 2019. I think all car manufacturers know that this is coming. You know, it's more of a question of, we've known it for a while, it's a question of when. They're now realising that actually if they've got to suddenly move their entire fleet of cars to electric, why not get into electric racing as well? Um, and, you know, having these massive, massive manufacturers and brands involved has, I suppose, really built momentum within the racing championship and with the likes of, yeah, we've got Mercedes, Porsche, um, Audi obviously coming in at the beginning of this season and BMW, then it's just a sign that it's just growing and it is the place to be right now. 
it's definitely been uh, accelerated somewhat the, the the massive influx of manufacturers that they've had from from the second season when they opened up powertrain development and got the manufacturers involved it, immediately you had Renault commit Audi sort of work with apps before obviously next season it will become a full works entry and then emerging emerging brands or electric vehicle specialists like Nextev, uh, Venturi and uh, Mahindra and the like that's obviously given Formula E almost immediate credibility in terms of its ultimate objective but it's been accelerated by factors outside of its control for example the Volkswagen emissions scandal manufacturers the world over have had to basically show early that they're committed to moving towards uh, more sustainable sustainable energy sources for for, for road cars changing whether it's um, full electric or hybrid that those changes are coming and manufacturers love to go racing to show off what they're doing and Formula E is actually a very very cost effective way to go international uh, single-seater racing at the moment there's a lot of criticism about the format of Formula E there are some people who are very skeptical about it and I'd be interesting to bring Alex in here in terms of the driving experience people say oh they're not very noisy they're not proper racing cars they're not that quick but they're obviously pretty difficult to drive even though you try to make them look like they weren't with your pole position straight up but I think actually what makes it so serious is the quality of teams and drivers that are competing in it you know the car itself is evolving very very quickly as a as a performance racing car and I think already well, the lap times are certainly, even with the same, let's say, power unit, the same battery as it had in season one, the technology has moved forward so quickly. And then as soon as by the time we get to season five, it'll be a whole different category. Um, so from that side, the benefit of having such great teams and great drivers is, is how fast forward the, the championship's becoming. But in terms of the format and the way, the way it runs as a championship, having it all in one day makes it very exciting you have to be very disciplined as a driver and as a team to make sure you try and control every aspect you can if you make a mistake you'll end up having a bad a bad day and which is uh, is high high cost really but to be fair it's created an exciting championship and it's throwing up different results which is uh, come season's end making it exciting i'm still surprised that i get uh, complaints on on twitter i see it on the, the autosport accounts as well that People who are critical of Formula E criticise it for, for bad racing, for saying that it's boring and that it's not real motorsport. Obviously, you've been behind the wheel of, of two races now. Even the, the so-called dull Formula E races, a lot happens in them, doesn't it? They're not, they're not dull. If you t- take the average Formula E race and compare it to a Formula 1 race or a DTM race or something like that, from a driver's perspective, as much as anything else, there's, there, there's lots going on, isn't there? I think as a race, it's well, from my side anyway, it's always very exciting because you sort of understand the the difficulty of how a driver is having to control the race you know whether it's energy management battery temperature tire temperature um all all of these things it then i think i could say that the car's not the most thrilling in the world but that's what i kind of mean that the technology is coming so quickly that by the time we get to season five we go down to one car new battery new chassis it's going to look so much better and that's that's the most exciting thing about Formula E from my perspective is where it's going to go, not particularly where it's at now. And it's just got such a great a, um, a great chance of going a long way. I guess the big challenge for Formula E, and it's obviously something you're involved in, Nicky, with your presenting of it, is that there's loads of interesting technology there. But in my experience, the kind of new technology people like is things they can see. And here's a new shaped wing or here's a little widget that's on there. It's very difficult to explain to people about batteries and motors and inverters and that kind of thing is there always going to be that barrier there that kind of a battery to anyone on the outside if they do see it it's just a black box with a 
warning sign on it. I mean, it's unfortunately, it's not the sexiest of stuff at the moment. But, you know, I think if you look on the, the Formula E YouTube channel, you know, one of the most popular videos most watched is how does an electric battery actually work so people are interested in it they do want to know about it but i think it's the the unknown it's it's sort of i suppose if you don't really understand it then you're not interested in it and so i think that it, it it's taking its time and um, i suppose the kind of the education of how the powertrain works and what parts are interesting and and also it's it's difficult because i suppose at the moment all the cars when it comes to batteries are homologated so actually there's not a huge amount to talk about because that's not really changing what we focus on in the racing is obviously the amount of power and the the usable energy and ensuring that the drivers are efficient enough to actually end the race with enough energy in the battery. Um, so I think that's something that we focus on quite a lot. Yes, I think we maybe need to help keep educating everyone about it, but it's definitely growing and there's definitely more interest there, you know, than there was back in September 2014. And I think once in season five, when season five happens, when the cars, because obviously at the moment during the racing, each driver has two cars um, and they come into the pits, you know, they do a, a car swap instead of a driver swap. But when we have season five, we're going down to a super efficient one battery, one car for the entire duration of the race. And again, I think that is when it's going to become really, really interesting. And again, when we're going to start to see the real stories coming out of all the manufacturers. We've seen it on, uh, on autosport.com as well with our analytics for news stories and features that on a tech side, there is a genuine in interest and an appetite for information about what Formula E is currently doing tech-wise. Like Alex said earlier, in terms of the direction the championship is going, that tends to pick up a little bit more interest. What Formula E does next and develops into and how it handles technical development, technological freedom with the influx of manufacturers is going to be one of its key challenges. We we mentioned that maybe the technology isn't the sexiest thing to sell in the championship, but one thing that I've kind of felt that the championship sells a little bit short, and actually, in fairness, on the commentary, Jack, Dario, Martin, Bob, whoever is in, in charge of the commentary, they do try and push in the race, is actually how hard these cars are to drive. And I feel like it's one of the ironies of Formula E that a championship that is based on forward-thinking technology actually harnesses a lot of the traditions of racing better than most other championships so the driver having a lot of influence over over what happens the fact that the cars are actually quite limited in terms of the mechanical and aerodynamic grip that they produce the 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 brakes are really tricky the the new technology in the car driving with regen over over one lap managing really over the over the race is it, it's it's really complicated and from a driver's perspective alex do you think that there's more that could be done to showcase the challenge that you have behind the wheel and, you, and from your from your sort of experience of driving formula one cars junior single seaters all manner of sports cars now how how tough is the the challenge in in formula e when you're actually behind the wheel well i'd say actually just to put it into perspective formula e is by far the hardest category i've ever worked at as a driver in terms of preparation driving style um in the simulator just how much effort each team puts into having the driver up to speed because as well a being a one-day format and we know how difficult they are with only getting one chance in qualifying. You can have the best car on the grid, but if you make a small mistake, you won't qualify up the front and you won't win the race, or there's a very small chance. So from that side, that's also an exciting point, yeah, which maybe doesn't get highlighted enough, is there's massive pressure on the driver to get it right. And also, when you get it wrong, it's so difficult to recover. And yeah, it's probably something that could be highlighted slightly better. 
Are you including Formula One in that comparison? Obviously, you've had some involvement there with Williams. The big thing is is how little track time you get on the day. And it's, I'm not going to say, well, it is much easier when you've got FP1, FP2, FP3. It's the same when I do WEC. You've got all of those practice sessions. So when you rock up to the race weekend, you're not massively stressed to get it right in FP1 because you don't need to get it right straight away. You've got three practice sessions to get your perfect lap ready. And time in between those practice sessions as well to go over the data. You know, when you have a multi-day format, you can spend a lot more time analysing stuff. But when you have an hour and a half between FP1 and FP2, then an hour between FP2 and qualifying... Um, that's not a lot of time is it to to, to hone everything especially when the tracks are new or the majority of tracks are new you don't get the simulator information until two or three weeks before the event so it's not like you can massively cram before the event anyway and that's why preparation is so key in this championship and as a team I certainly know that how I've worked in Formula E is we just put so much effort into preparation and obviously even for an engineering side yes the technology is new but it's also pushing engineers and the human element to such an extreme where like you said you know you get the simulator information only two weeks before so you have to like massively rush to build a circuit in the virtual world and then the engineers have to take their energy data off of that and then come up with a race strategy off of that which you have to completely trust going into the race on race day that you've got it right and you only know through getting it wrong and also you know practicing again and again and again so from the human element it's is putting a lot of pressure on on the humans as well. And just going back to that one race day format, I suppose just to remind everyone that it is so busy because as well as having yeah, you've got your practice, you you know, you've got two morning um, practice sessions, then qualifying, but you've got all the other commitments as well. Yes, you have to go and have your 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 engineering chats, but you've also got media responsibilities you have to take part in the formula ee race you've somehow got to find some time to make lunch which is actually usually a good 20 minute walk from where the garages is and it really leaves you with all of about 10 minutes to yourself and it's like oh right you know the race is on and that's it i'm sure it's uh, not something that you appreciate as drivers so much alex but i one of the things that Formula E does deserve more credit for is the efforts it goes to to make it mandatory for the drivers to participate in certain events throughout the day. It does it makes it a lot harder, as you say, Nikki, because you're trying to fit it around an already condensed schedule. But to see the interaction with fans, the 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 E race, I think is a is, is a brilliant addition as well. And it's interesting that subsequently championships, whether it's F1 or whatever, have said, oh, you know, maybe we could have a simulator race every now and then. It's like that's been part of Formula E for for a long time now. Motorsport's very difficult for people to trip over and for people to, to to get invested in. And sometimes maybe F1, for example, has been guilty of taking for granted its popularity and, and sort of place in, in the world, especially the sporting world. I think the more it does to reward the people that turn up to tracks, the more that's going to pay it back in, in the longer term, even if it obviously makes your days even busier. <laughs> yeah, I think actually, obviously, starting on pole for my first race, from qualifying to the race, I think I had 10 minutes with my engineer to go through race strategy but again puts the emphasis on preparation which you were lucky enough to to come join us for i've got um first-hand experience of how the ds virgin boys go about preparing and it was new york as well so that was really interesting because that was i believe that was the first time you'd been able to see the track and and, and drive the track and from the original the original new york track was meant to go in the other direction wasn't it to what was eventually used it was launched one way and then the other and I, and I had uh, I think I'd basically just sort of forgotten that it had been flipped 
So when I turned up and I saw the map and I was looking at it thinking, it's a really odd line to be suggesting that you're going to be taking it to that. And then obviously the simulator loads and you see it and you think, well, this is completely different to what I was expecting. And then watching how you work through things and speaking to the engineers there and hearing about how little information they need straight away to then immediately go and shut themselves in the room for four hours and work out energy strategy. I think you did, uh, yeah, I think Sam and, and yourself did like a few laps when we first got there. And then one of the engineers wandered off and said i've i've got a couple of clean laps i I know i can now plot a rough energy target now or what we're going to be using you think that that's incredible it, it, it starts from something so small and as soon as you have a small data set the preparation begins immediately which is uh, it was a massive surprise to me and i constantly get it in the ear from formulary engineers and teams about how much preparation goes into it my best lap from the simulator was one tenth slower than the lap I did for pole position from completely not knowing what we're looking at to then in, into reality. So it's uh, yeah, massive credit to the DS Virgin quest. There's lots of positives there, but obviously there are some challenges for Formula E. Lots of manufacturers coming in creates its own problems because nobody likes to be at the back. They'll all have slightly different objectives for what they'd like to develop and obviously there's been some some of them have been lobbying to slightly change the technology roadmap which Formula E has tried to tried to stick to. The big thing I think that that uh, quite a lot of the teams are worried about is um, budget you know obviously having these big manufacturers coming on board look at Porsche they're going from running an LMP1 team which you know the budget for that Scott you could probably have a better figure on what the budget for that is but you know hundreds of millions where you're moving into something a lot less for Formula E but I know that they're obviously going to want to increase the budgets, whereas you've got the smaller teams who are saying, well, hang on a minute, this is the reason that we're here. This is the reason that we got involved in Formary because we can afford to be involved. Um, so I think that's going to be very interesting when, you know, season five, season six starts to develop, how Alejandro Agag, the CEO of Formary, actually deals with that. Well, at the moment, I suspect a, a top Formary budget at the moment probably isn't quite 10% of the biggest Formula One budget. If we say that, say, a top Formula One budget is what, 300 million pounds, 300 million euros, something like that, then I suspect at the moment teams are probably spending between 20 and 30 million euros on Formula E. And that's like, that's top end because even last season, I remember there being surprised from a couple of teams to hear that the suspicion was Renault had spent 10, 12 million euros on the season two powertrain. And you think if that's considered a game-changing budget in Formula E, that gives you an idea of sort of the difference between Formula E and other categories. The the other thing in, in, in terms of budget, and you, you mentioned so Porsche, not it's not just the fact that they're coming in from another championship where they're already spending lots of money. So you know that they could massively slash their LMP1 budget and still be putting in a, a top-tier Formula E programme. Porsche was one of the one of the brands that was heavily linked to the spec battery supply from uh, from season five onwards, and it didn't win. McLaren's technology arm won won the tender, but to me, it's too much of a coincidence that Porsche was interested in supplying the spec battery, didn't get it, and then a few months later announces that it's going to be entering a works team from from season six, which is probably maybe a couple of seasons away from when battery technology will will probably be opened up. Formula E's made no secret of the fact that it needs to keep a lid on costs. It you know, it won't open up chassis development, it won't open up aero development. But one of the things it has to open up at some point is is the technology. And in electric vehicles the battery is is king. You know, the biggest thing that electric vehicles face in terms of public uh, a stigma is 
his range. And at the moment, Formula E is massively hamstrung by the fact that you have to swap cars mid-race. That does a, a real disservice to what electric vehicles are capable of. So that's the first thing they need to address. And that's why BMW is going to be coming in with a full works team in season five. But when you start looking at more interesting powertrain solutions, uh, whether you switch to harvesting energy from the front axle as well as just the rear axle four-wheel drive do you implement torque vectoring do you open up the battery so it becomes a technological free-for-all speaking to lucas degrassi just last week about this and he said open up those sort of things and very very quickly in in a year or two years you could see formula e budget spiral from 10 20 30 million euros to north of 100 million euros but it is also one of the areas that alejandro gag and his team has identified as the number one priority with the manufacturers coming in that if they do come in, which obviously a lot of them have, they're not going to be able to control where the where the series go. That's down to the to the championship and the FIA as the regulators to make sure that they don't let it don't let it escalate beyond control. How far do you think it should escalate, though? Because you know, at the moment, yes, perhaps the budgets do need to go up a little bit. Part of me is very very curious to see what would happen if you just said, well, pretty much. With the exception of Tachita at the moment, everyone has an alliance to a, to a manufacturer, whether it's an established manufacturer or an EV specialist or, a, or, or, or an emerging car maker, maybe like Mahindra or a smaller, a smaller company like Venturi. Everyone's linked to, to money, basically, and that's only going to in, in increase in the next few seasons. So, you know, it's a very interesting prospect to think, well, they're all going to have money. No one's going to be short. So it's not like you need a budget cap like Formula One to fix spending disparity. So why not let them have it? Let's see what they come up with. And then maybe you'll have like a two or three year zenith where Formula E is just incredible. And then it just implodes on itself spectacularly. So I'm not really sure. That's one of the things. That's why it's so interesting because no one's had to no one's had to manage a tech, uh, uh, like an arms race on the technology front in, in this sphere before. It's happened in motorsport in, in F1 for example but no one's had to do it with electric vehicles and the technology involved in that so it will be very interesting but Ed you're probably quite a good person to weigh in on this because obviously with your experience in Formula One Formula One has gone through a period where it had boom and bust with manufacturers Dieter Renkin wrote something about this which you can read on on Autosport Plus but from your experience how how tricky is it to to manage this process? I think you've got to accept that manufacturers in motor racing is boom bust they will invest money some will end up dropping out because they're not doing so well. You can understand why they want to invest money because also if they're doing Formula E as a technological challenge as an R&D testbed, that costs money if they want it to be valid for that. There's a lot of money being invested in electric vehicle technology. They want to be able to invest it and prove it and develop it in racing. So the critical factor there is, as was mentioned earlier, you need your hardcore of privateer teams, teams that exist purely to go racing in order to survive because when manufacturers come and go and they you know they could stay for a good period of time it might not be a couple of years flare up it could be two three four five but the one thing you can be sure is the manufacturers will go eventually i'd like to think actually also a point that nikki uh, brought up earlier which is on the global scale of uh, the automotive industry most racing is such a small footnote and when we talk about you know manufacturers coming in to do formula one formula one has you know its relevance to technology and road cars has always been very small so when they come in it's purely about winning or purely about achieving you know good results but the difference between i think formula e is even if a big manufacturer doesn't get the results it wants it's still very relevant to what they're trying to do with their road car manufacturing and that's and that's still important even if the team isn't doing well so if we yeah if it still remains relevant sort of maybe the 
the necessity to perform isn't quite as big as it was and is with Formula One. A driver's main goal is obviously to link up with a major motor manufacturer in, in, in racing and obviously in LMP1 aspiring sports car drivers have now lost one of those or they've lost two options in the last 12 months with with, with Audi and, and, and Porsche leaving LMP1 and then that has a knock-on effect of making Toyota reconsider what they do so even if let's say Toyota continues next season but it's on a either reduced program or they're starting to cycle down they're obviously going to it restricts opportunities uh, further there and I just wonder because obviously that will also affect people that want to go and do LMP2 because LMP2 is not a destination in itself. It's a means to an end, obviously, as, as, as you've been trying to do on, in, in WEC. So from a driver's perspective, how frustrating, how crucial is the the ebbing and flowing of manufacturers in, in different categories in terms of limiting or, or opening up your, your options? You've obviously had uh, a few different affiliations over the course of this season. So... Is it easier, harder, better, worse when you're targeting privately run programs or manufacturer programs in, in, in your experience? I'd say the last 24 months have been very, very difficult for racing drivers trying to get manufacturer seats, especially with you know Audi pulling out, Porsche pulling out, Mercedes pulling out of DTM. The problem is you then get in a conversation of what's the relevance of motor racing outside of Formula E? That's a separate question, but I suppose... It is very difficult, especially when manufacturers are coming in and out. But certainly, Formula E has made itself the most relevant at the moment by quite some distance, I'd say. And it's just going to be dependent on Formula E to keep relevance, isn't it? This technology area is changing very rapidly. And it's going to continue to be an important area of investment for quite a period of time. So perhaps that's the key for Formula E to be fleet-footed and react to if there are technology breakthroughs, which are bound to happen, that'll influence road car technology. There could be a need to change course down the line yeah i mean obviously at the moment formula e is very committed to and very proud of the fact that it's the first major ele- international electric championships the first electric single seater series it's got its exclusivity deal with the fia to be the only sanctioned electric single seater series but what happens if um, in the next five years there's something equivalent to the emissions the volkswagen emissions scandal or hydrogen cell fuel-based comes in and becomes the the the, the go-to direction for the automotive industry does it become formula hydrogen cell well it's interesting that you mentioned hydrogen fuel cells because you know i think that i suppose the general view at the moment is very much that that is the future you know we've always talked about electric vehicles being the future but actually electric vehicles is kind of the interim phase between internal combustion engines and hydrogen fuel cells so i think yeah electric well that's not going to be around forever that's for sure it's only until you know the next best alternative comes onto the market so whether the racing will survive that possibly not but um it's interesting that you mentioned motorsport is there going to be a need for motorsport you know outside of I sort know, of regretted it, it as soon as it came out of my yeah, mouth no, <laughs> no but i love it so there's a, you know the great analogy is always that we watch we've watched horse racing since we were going around in horse and carts yes we don't go around in horse and carts anymore but we still watch horse racing and it's a massive industry loved by all so we can very much still have motor racing we don't necessarily have to be driving around in those particular cars using that particular technology i think that's a big question isn't it nobody can be sure exactly where the technology goes the technology needs to work it needs to be scalable it's got to be safe you've got to build the infrastructure so there's going to be a lot of changes i think anybody who says 100 percent they know where it's going to be in 20 30 40 years is 
being quite optimistic, but what we can be sure of is it, it's going to it's going to change a lot. As long as the sport is entertaining, people will watch it. <laughs> and Formula E, to its credit, has been entertaining. To my mind, it's one of the most entertaining championships to watch. And so I think for those who we are, love it, those who have maybe some- I'm slightly biased. <laughs> <laughs> well, of course, but for those who have somehow got this far into a Formula E podcast, listening who don't like Formula E, I'd urge <laughs> them to watch it. But I, I don't exactly, think exactly. Yeah, well done you. <laughs> <laughs> Keep watching. It's probably quite a good time to look back a little bit now at the season. Sebastian Buemi was the championship favourite. He was ahead in the championship, missed a couple of rounds, lost out in the Montreal doubleheader to Lucas de Grassi. Now, I think the good anchor point for this discussion will be Scott Mitchell's top 10 drivers of the year. Obviously, this is when <laughs> we take into account all factors and the, the top 10 drivers are ranked in, in a slightly more, well, you could say subjective order. It's not by points, it's by who did the best job. Now, the big controversy here is Scott does not have the champion number one. Yeah, Sebastian Buemi, number one. Felix Rosenquist, the, the star rookie who finished third in the championship for Mahindra in second. And then Lucas de Grassi, the champion, third. So let's let's ask uh, Nicky and or Alex to, to, to dissect it I mean, and say why Scott's wrong. I think, well, first of all, we've obviously just got to, to talk about how the championship ended. I mean, again, season three, it went down to the wire. And this was Sebastian's championship to lose he came in I think into the the, it was unfortunate I suppose for Sebastian Bremi because by the time we were coming into the last kind of couple of rounds in New York or Montreal he'd won six out of eight races you know it was he was doing an absolutely sterling job but then Lucas Degrassi I think came in towards the end of the season he was very fortunate that Sebastian Bremi couldn't make the double header in New York which Obviously, this is the moment that the championship changed. And actually, quite interesting, I had a chat with Alan Prost and he said that he knew kind of months ago, he was like, if Sebastian Buemi is not leading the championship enough that he can have the championship title wrapped up before New York, he's going to throw it all away because the pressure, he just can't cope with it. And that is exactly what we saw sort of unravel I suppose in New York which obviously allowed Lucas Grassi to win the title but back to your top 10 drivers Sebastian Bremi won Felix second Lucas Grassi third now obviously there's been a lot of talk about Sebastian Bremi having he's a fantastic driver and not we're not taking anything away from that but he also has potentially the quickest car on the grid. Uh, so the fact that Lucas Degrassi has worked tirelessly and he's probably, I mean, you've said he's got arguably the fourth best powertrain on the grid. So you're saying that, hang on a minute, wait, this quote, Scott Mitchell in Autosports, top and driver, Lucas Grassi is the fourth best powertrain. So how can you not say that he's won the championship, he's got the fourth best powertrain, that he's only third on the top 10 driver list? I will qualify the, the claim that he's the fourth best powertrain. Uh, basically, there's a method that um, I have stolen from Gary Anderson, which is basically to convert the the best time from any team or driver from a, a race weekend into a percentage. And then that basically, the outright best time from that weekend is considered 100%. And then you compare mm-hmm. the best time from every team or driver compared to that as a percentage. Then you take those numbers over the course of the season and it's not a foolproof way of measuring outright speed, but it's probably the best barometer you've you've got to, to actually compare. And when you actually look at that over the course of the year, Renault comes out on top with Mahindra, DS Virgin and then Apt very, very close behind. There are factors involved, so maybe not getting a completely clean FP2 lap in, for example, at uh, 200 kilowatts. Uh, one race will obviously skew someone's numbers, that sort of thing. But that's in fastest, and I think efficiency is 
well, I think is a very different yeah, and we've and, result. And there have been times, there have also been times this season where the apt car was considerably quicker than, say, Mahindra or, or DS and, and even and even Renault. You know, Degrassi's race pace in, in Mexico was fantastic, even though he had the quite ridiculous energy strategy by pitting much earlier under a safety car. So he had to do more than half the race in his second car. But he still had really good pace, even though he was managing his energy a lot more aggressively than others. And in Montreal, he beat Buemi in a straight fight for pole on Saturday and then won the race reasonably comfortably against the, the Renault-powered Tachita of Jean-Éric Verne. My point what is that in raw pace, arguably, over the course of the season fourth best powertrain which and I know I'm sort of basically arguing against myself here actually means that you could argue that at times he had the fifth fast he was in the fifth fastest team because obviously Tachita is a customer of of Renault so there's another team that was potentially in between him and and winning but I'm not going to give you any more ammunition to to take (laughs) shots at my top question your reasoning behind it I mean the other thing which which I love you've actually said Sebastian Remy obliterated his teammates well actually Sebastian Remy came second and Nico Prost came sixth whereas Lucas Degrassi came first and Daniel Abt came eighth. With, with so that, I would say that Lucas Degrassi obliterated his team. Problem there is that obviously when you go when you go straight off of results on a championship table, it's not always uh, it's not always totally accurate. And, and, and Apt actually had uh, a really good season, much improved from 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 last year. And I remember speaking to him in in Mexico when he'd been stripped of pole position for one of the tyres being under the the minimum stipulated by Michelin. And there, like Apt had put it on pole, and Lucas had had another qualifying session, the second time in I think the first four four races where he didn't do a great job in qualifying. And I remember Daniel was basically sort of like intimating that there was a second race in four that Lucas had been very very fortunate in the race, having had a bad qualifying, got caught up in first lap drama, so got damaged. Exactly what happened to Boemi twice in Montreal. The difference between the two is that they didn't get that Boemi in Montreal didn't get a safety car to bail him out, and Lucas did in Hong Kong and Mexico. And regardless of how well he executed that situation, Lucas was really, really lucky to, that the race went his way. So we managed to get a situation in Mexico where Apt had put it on pole, had done the best job out of the two drivers, outperformed his teammate comprehensively, and come the race, Apt puts in a charging drive from the back of the grid to, I think, maybe sixth or seventh in the race. There was a bit of late race drama. And whereas Lucas went from the back to first, not really through his own control. And that sort of summed well, up Well, we say that not through his own control, but I find that, yeah, we always say it, luck. Daniel Lad always gets bad luck. Lucas Grassi always gets good luck. I don't think that is luck. That is strategic. That is being smart. That is consistency. I don't think, I mean, it's a very bold strategy for, for Lucas Perhaps to plan that one first particular. lap damage in yeah, Hong okay. Kong and Mexico. That one in particular, but just generally on but the whole. The, the amount no, of times you, that we say Daniel Labs had bad luck. But he does because, you know, the car stopped at the end in... Um, uh, the, the, you know, that, the car stopped several times this season. He's lost a lot of points for factors outside of his control. Whereas Nico, for example, or at Renault, to go back it, to go back to the I'm not sure that I'm not sure that it is. And going back to the to the original point, the comparison to the teammates, I you know I like Nico Pross. He's a, he's a he's a very nice guy, and he's proven that he's very quick. He's he let you know he won he won a race in season one. He was he was genuinely competitive in this championship in season one. He won both races at Battersea Park at the end of season two. Mm. Admittedly, with the title favourites out of the he picture. Was first pole position. Yeah, well. I mean, he is he he has proven that he knows how to drive these cars quickly. But in a car that Boemi won half of the races in this season, or half the races that he was there for this season, he, he won he won six races, six of the first eight, six out of 12 in total. Nico didn't even get a podium. Nico had a three fourth place finishes at the start of the year and then didn't get, didn't finish higher than fifth, I don't think, over the rest of the season. He, he was absolutely battered by, by Seb this year. And it might not, I don't know what the, off the top of my head, can't think what the gap was in terms of uh, points between 
Seb and Nico and then Lucas to, to Daniel. But I think in terms of actual performance in the cars over the weekend, what they got out of their respective packages, uh, Daniel did a much better job at APT than, than Nico did at Renault. Fair enough. Alex, what do you think of that? Well, um, well, here's the question for Alex. If you were going into this scenario, would you, into a season, would you rather have the Edam's Renault car missing two races or the APT Audi Shuffler car that Degrassi had with a two-race advantage Great in question. terms of winning a championship. Yeah, that's a, that's and, a good question. And while you're having a think, I can also throw in a little stat that obviously the missing the double header was critical for Boemi, but actually Degrassi's points all there, 22, was slightly smaller than his eventual championship winning margin. So, But then we're assuming that Boemi doesn't score anything. In that's very York. true, yeah. But it, it says it's it's not an absolute slam dunk in terms of that. But it, So the question, which situation would you rather go into the season in? I would rather have the the Lucas Degrassi situation really because it's it's true that it's well even though to be fair to Seb he did an outstanding job before before New York to win six out of eight races it's not a nice situation to be in to know that you're going to have to miss a weekend uh, so from that point of view it's yeah it sort of adjusts things mentally from from a driver's point of view but from I still yeah I don't think you can really put put a um put an answer to it because to be fair to Sebi won half the races of the season whilst he didn't finish a third of the races but he managed to win half of them. Yeah, so basically he he had he had six wins. He was excluded from from two races. He 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 was responsible for his own failure to score in in Mexico apart from I think a fastest a point for fastest lap. Uh, he spun away a, a lower points paying position in Mexico after um, through no fault of his own, he'd lost points in the in the pit lane in in the car swaps. He'd he'd worked his way slowly up to I think fifth or sixth, and he was in the lead battle. And then the um, the Andretti boys uh, they didn't read the amendment to the driver's briefing notes overnight, and they got the pit pit lane, uh, minimum pit stop time wrong. So they got released early from their car swaps, which put them out in the pit lane out of position ahead of where Boemi should have been rejoining. So he had to wait for those two cars to come through. So when he rejoined, instead of rejoining fifth or sixth and in the lead fight, he was down in eighth or ninth, and then basically pushing a bit too hard to to recover ground got uh, alongside, I think it was a Mahindra into turn one. And then when Pachito Lopez spun, Seb was on the outside going into the corner. It already locked up a bit and was out of shape and then got caught out a little bit by Pachito spin and then lost it. So he, he failed to score there. Uh, he was excluded uh, from race one in Berlin, obviously. And then he didn't, he didn't do the two races in New York. And then he was <laughs> excluded from the penultimate race in Montreal. And then because of his poor qualifying performance in the second race in Montreal the season finale he picked up damage on the first lap had to stop early and did a brilliant job fighting back from the back to 11th which was amazing because he was about 15 seconds behind the pack at one stage but got back to a pointless uh, pointless 11th so I think I'm all right in saying if he didn't win he didn't score points on from, from a top 10 finish he got a point in in Mexico for, for he only scored lap. points by winning yeah basically there you go we haven't talked a great deal about Felix Rosenqvist here, obviously, Scott's top ten putting Boemi number one has been dismantled a bit by uh, by Nicky Shields. There, I think Alex helped you save a bit of respectability. Oh, I'd, I'd, I'd back I that one. I just like to argue. <laughs> Officially, <laughs> no, I'd back that one. That's what that's what it's all about. But Felix Rosenqvist, who's number two in Scott's ranking, rookie season, got his first win in Berlin. Can you make a case for him being the standout driver of the season? You always make more allowances for for rookies. The top tens are always always difficult. It's very easy to just go by the championship table and just say, okay, well, this guy won the championship, therefore he did the best job over the season. But you try and look at look at all of the all of the factors, and the the, the hardest situation is not when you're trying to 
argue someone to be um to be number one it's when you've got three drivers who could you could make a good argument for being number one and then you have to basically find a reason to place them ahead of one another Rosenfist was absolutely astounding for 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 a rookie this season um probably and i don't say this to sort of try and play down his achievement as such but probably surprised more people than he should have done because he's with Mahindra, which hasn't had highs like it's had this season before. But that is a team that has been, you know, it's very well financed. It, they, they've put a lot of effort into the uh, in, into the development of the powertrain. And in a guy like Nick Heidfeld, they've got someone leading the development on the driver's side whose feedback is probably second to none in Formula E. He's, he's, and he's, he's, he drives the team really hard. I remember speaking to them a couple of races into last season after he switched from... Venturi to Mahindra for season two, and they were already—they were already saying like he's relentless, like he's never happy, and he's always got something that they can improve on. So Felix has massively benefited from um, a team that's on the rise anyway, and a teammate who is quick enough to push Felix to a new level as a driver, but also develop the car and get the package to the point where Felix, who is quicker than Nick, can get the most out of it. He was—he was rapid straight away. He went to Hong Kong. And he was flying through the air over over the curb at the in the first chicane at, at Hong Kong, where the curb was really aggressive. At, did his 170 kilowatt lap in qualifying and mate basically flew over the curbs because he wanted to see how much he could get away with before he got into his 200 lap and almost put it in the barrier. So then he was just like, oh, for the 200 lap, I need to rein in a little bit. So he was pushing straight away. He learned the lessons of energy management from the first half of the season. He was on par with Marrakesh, but didn't convert it into a win. So second half of the season, he put it together. Berlin, he won a race, which was fantastic. I still think he's partially responsible for the error that basically cost him the win on the Sunday in Berlin when he went to pull away from the pits and just as Heidfeld was coming in and almost hit his teammate and he picked up an unsafe release penalty for that. So he won on the road but got relegated to second. But there were elements of his driving that didn't improve over the course of the season. He kept making silly errors right up until the penultimate race where he was running, I think, fourth or fifth just ahead of Buemi in the closing stages and he pranged the wall damaged the left rear of his car so he slipped down to 10th uh, but then bounced back with pole and second on the final day of the season and <laughs> including present company the the number of drivers who have stepped into Formula E as a rookie and impressed is really really small there, it's a very hard championship to come in and make make your mark in obviously Alex did it with pole in 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 New York but uh, for a, a season-long performance like Felix to to do what he did he it was it was genuinely exceptional Absolutely. I mean, I think I couldn't agree with you more, actually, in this instance, Scott. Um, I That's think, disappointing. I know, I know. But I think you picked up on the, the importance there of, you know, Felix being a rookie, but having Nick Heidfeld as a teammate and having Nick's experience as a driver, um, his maturity and also his knowledge of Formula E and being able to educate Felix, I think, was a huge, huge advantage. Um, and, you know, you could see that from, from the beginning. He went in confident understanding as you said all the energy management there and uh, he just continued to impress and when they won you know well that first double podium for Mahindra was such an incredible thing to watch to experience I mean Dilbag Gill the the team principal he's a he's a pretty emotional guy I mean he he puts a lot of pressure on the drivers it's all about winning um and just to see him so elated was was a really really special moment and um you know to to then to then practically do it again virtually within a few weeks was was amazing but I think yeah Felix Rosenquist in second I think that 
that sits well. It's probably worth having a quick run through the rest of them. I don't want to go over every single driver, but in Scott's rankings, he had Sam Bird fourth. Obviously, Sam had a couple of wins. Nick Heidfeld fifth, who, as is his wont, didn't win any races, but had a lot of podiums. Interestingly, Nick Heidfeld has now got the record for most podiums without a win in both Formula 1 and Formula E, with 13 and 7, respectively. So he's, he's got a good record there. there Nick Jean-Eric Verne in sixth place, who finally got his, his first race win at the end of the season. Jose Maria Lopez, 7th. Mitch Evans, 8th in the Jaguar. Robin Frines, Andretti driver, ninth, And Oliver Turvey in 10th. So is there any of those drivers that people want to get excited about or argue a case for being higher or lower or even anyone who's not even in the top 10 who people are outraged? Come on, Nikki. We're, we're well, expecting I, you to demolish yeah, Scott I, I, You know, I want to have a quick mention of Mitch Evans, actually, because... I think he had a huge amount of pressure on him. You know, Jaguar, their return to racing after a 12-year hiatus. You know, they have a huge marketing budget, much bigger than all the other teams probably put together. So they were, they were probably in the press more than any of the other teams. So I think there was a lot of pressure on them to deliver through, I suppose, no fault of their own, really. They were underprepared due to the, just the timings. You know, they just didn't have long enough to actually focus on preparing the powertrain so they did finish in terms of the team's championship right at the bottom but Evans has done really really well I mean I think he qualified in the top 10 four times um unlike I don't think I'm not quite sure about his teammate but his teammate Adam Carroll didn't you know um compete at that kind of level at all um and uh, he got f- the the first f- points for the team finishing fourth in mexico city which is uh, i think a pretty impressive result given that he maybe didn't have the rights or the best tools to achieve what he wanted to achieve he uh he was under a lot of pressure to to perform this season because he got that seat ahead of a very talented young british driver who's um who's probably got a bright future in Formula E and is also a very good guest on this podcast at the moment. Uh, so Mitch was obviously in the part of the shootout at the start of the season to to get that drive. See, Alex and uh, Harry Tinknell were also there. Adam Carroll was, I think, locked in. At the time, they weren't really committing to anyone, but Adam was basically lo- locked in early because he'd done a lot of the development testing. He recovered from a bit of a difficult start, which I think probably wasn't helped by his lack of testing before then paid the price a little bit for Jag's approach to how they were going to pick their drivers. He had a sort of needless error in, in, in Marrakesh. But after that, the sort of extended weird three-month break between Marrakesh and Buenos Aires really helped the team. I think they dug into the data quite a lot. But after that, Mitch was just... Mitch was very, very good at extracting the most from the car. And you can never get more out of a car than it's capable of, but you can always put a car higher than it deserves to be if you get the most out of it and other people under-deliver. And in Formula E, people under-deliver a lot because it's really easy to make mistakes. But the difference is that a rookie in a bad package didn't make as many mistakes as other drivers. And he comprehensively, we talked about earlier about teammates obliterating other teammates, and Mitch has put Adam firmly in the shade this season. I will be very surprised if Mitch doesn't get a second season at Jaguar. And for the same reasons, I'll be surprised if Adam stays on because I think Mitch has outclassed him too much this year. The biggest praise that you can put on Mitch is that the battle for seventh in the team's championship, uh, which obviously isn't one that people really focus on, but when you actually look at the final point standings, Jaguar was embroiled in a really fierce fight at the end of the uh, at the end of the season, where there were four teams that were separated by only a handful of points, and Jaguar finished last, but they were right in that fight for seventh. And had the last few races gone a little bit differently, there's a very good chance they would have nicked seventh or eighth in the team's championship. The biggest thing I can say about Evans is that without him, they'd have been absolutely nowhere near. 
And while Mitch got a bit of fortune in Mexico with the fourth place, for example, he was on course to score points on merit in that race anyway. He was the lead driver for a, a works team of Jaguar's uh, reputation and, and size and history uh, as, a, as a rookie in a very, very difficult championship. And after the first couple of races were out of the way, he handled that absolutely superbly. How, how about Sam Bird? As you point out in your season review, he's won races in every in every season. He's always in the mix thereabouts, but hasn't quite been able to put together a a championship championship bid this year is that just because the ds package wasn't quite up to it i think um sam himself is a very honest guy anyway i think sam has 100 percent got a title campaign in him and if you if you look at the results sheet down here i think even himself would be very disappointed with the he had a dnf in buenos aires and uh, monaco i think those are two races that took him out of the just outside the title fight which is a shame because he was very close and actually his his performances all the time were very good it's just I think two or three DNFs or two or three non-scores which took him slightly out of the, the title fight but in terms of you know winning two races other podiums as well like in genuine pace he was always right up there he was uh, he was very unlucky he could and maybe would have won the season opener in Hong Kong, but there was obviously a problem no, absolutely, the, yeah. getting the second yeah, car to start in the car swaps. And then he was second in Marrakesh. He said after Marrakesh that Buemi was in a different league at the moment. And he, I think he was concerned about the race pace because I think the DS package was, was really potent, had the capacity to be really, really quick, but maybe lacked a bit in, in race trim. We talked about how important efficiency is in this championship and obviously Renault seemed to have the edge there. But yeah, it was the back-to-back not pointless races because I think he got fastest lap in Monaco and Paris, but it was, but yeah, the the, the DNF in, in Argentina and then the two back-to-back one-point scores that, that damaged him. And he had a bit of a, um, a bit of a set to with Pachito in the race in one of the races in Berlin as well, where they went, I think, wheel to wheel and he got caught out and he got shuffled back in both of those races. And you sort of thought at that point, Jesus, this uh, this guy's season sort of not going off the rails, like not necessarily through any fault of his own. Obviously, it's really easy to just get a knock in Formula E and damage a bit an end plate or something or one of the pods behind the rear wheels and have to pit. Um, so to bounce back the way he did and win the opener in New York, I w- would imagine he was particularly relieved to have done that. And then come, came back the following day and did it all over again. I mean, winning two races in a weekend, that's pretty impressive, isn't it? Especially when you got your uh, your boss. I mean, Sir Richard Branson was there as well. Maybe he brought some good luck. How about Jean Eric Verne? The team I like to call Technical Cheetah had the Renault powertrain. It's pretty much always quick, isn't he, Jean Eric Verne? A bit. He seems a little bit like when he was in Formula One, where the pace was unquestionably there, and mm. there were times when everything came together, and he was absolutely fantastic. But there are other times when things just went off the rails. Is he somebody who? underachieved or is the difference in points just down to the fact that the team wasn't quite at the level of of the the Renault Edams team it's a, it's a tough one because he is always quick I mean and quality his first lap is always unbelievable the, the sec- his second lap you know because obviously you go into Super Bowl um was never quite as quick as his initial quality lap I don't know whether that was an issue with the tires or whether that was an issue with with him as a driver but um Interesting that it has taken up until the last race of season three for him to bag his first ever Formula E win. I mean, despite the incredible pace, I mean, he was one of the only drivers, obviously alongside um, Alex, uh, to come in and put it on pole in his very first race in Punta del Este. So he was on pole position for his first race. We had huge high hopes for him and he has been quick and yet he's still 
it's taken him this long, nearly three seasons, to get his first win. One of the things I was saying all season was that he needs to learn how to race these cars, not drive them quickly. If he has mastered it, Montreal would suggest that he's cracked it because the way he chased down Rosenfist and and, and won the final race was a bit Bohemian-esque in terms of managing his energy well. He was able to run a lap longer than Rosenfist and then use the extra energy in the second stint to close him down, pass him with ease and then control the race to the end. The jury's still out on whether he's got that level of consistency in him because if you look back over the course of his season, you had the team ruined his race, uh, ruined his chance of pole in, in, in Marrakesh by not sending him out into the pit lane early enough. If you remember, the, they sent him out too late and the light was red at the end of the lane, which was which was amateurist. But then he ruined his own, um, I think he ruined his own race in, by, by speeding in the pit lane. Um, he didn't quite have enough in, in Buenos Aires in a straight fight with Buemi. Then he had problems sort of in a couple of other races as well. You know, I mean, Berlin, he was awful in terms of energy management. Like, I don't know that I don't recall the team ever saying that there was a particular problem, but there's a brilliant video that you formed a report on YouTube, which was a sort of collation of like Jeb's uh, radio messages over the course of the race. And it's, it's calamitous. Like you do feel sorry for his engineer in those situations because he does seem to be, when it starts to go away from him, he does seem to be a particularly difficult guy to work with. I've got the impression that the DS Virgin guys this year have been a lot happier with the dynamic with Sam and Pachito and working with a guy like Pachito because as much as I think Jev left with, uh, not not exactly on bad terms with anyone at the team, I think they just felt that Sam was a guy that you can get on with and he will just like he'll work around stuff and he's pretty calm on the radio and if he's got problems you can just get on with it and you'll know this Alex from your experience now of the two races when you start to pick up a problem or maybe the race is sort of going away from you you're losing places or you need to save energy you've got to keep a cool head haven't you you can't you can't get flustered yeah it's, it's very important to keep well especially in this championship to keep uh, keep a level head I always feel like championships are always very mean when they play some radio radio messages because in the car it genuinely makes sense that you're saying something that sounds to the outside very ridiculous, but also ex- extremely aggressive or frustrated. Well, Nicky will be able to feel that. I think the TV, yeah, TV broadcasts <laughs> are very, very mean on that situation. <laughs> we just like to try and tell the story. <laughs> That's what it's all about, isn't it? But actually, Alex, talking about when we're going through these drivers, talking about cutting out mistakes, what they need to do, what they don't need to do. Obviously, the drivers know this, don't they? They know better than the journalists, those who are honest with themselves, what they need to work out. So if you're someone like Jeff looking at that do you think he'll be sat there thinking yeah I know I need to do that but I don't quite know how to how to get everything tied together deep down inside everyone knows what they're good at and what they're not quite so good at and I think any honest person especially any honest racing driver slash athlete will know what they need to get better at I would say that there's not one person in this top 10 that doesn't know what they need to improve on but I doubt there's any one of those in the top 10 that don't believe that they can be a champion in this in this formula so from that side, you get both sides, really. You, they know what they need to improve, but they also, I can guarantee you, they all believe that they should be number one on that list. He's going to be number one next year then, Scott. That's what we want to know. Maybe next year's Lucas's year. He has been very, very good. The two seasons I've covered Formula E, he's been excellent. And one of the things that I did, you know, if you let emotion creep into these sort of things, which you, you try not to because you try and deal with, with with facts, was I felt bad putting him number three last season when he finished second um, but to be fair when I put him number three last season that was more of a reflection of what happened at, at Battersea the final race when he drove up the back of Seb the start of the final race at Battersea it made everyone forget the rest of the season he was perfect last season right up until the first 
150 meters or however it was of the final race and then that to me just totally overshadows his whole season so maybe next season's next season's his year obviously apps will be fully fully fledged uh works audi team next season they've um got a bit of work to do to match match renault in terms of uh you know potency over the course of a season but then of course you're going to have uh, you know ds virgin's improvement from last season to this season was uh, was massive. Mahindra stepped up the game. Tachita will be better in its second year of a Renault. Next DV went from the back of the grid to super pole contenders this time round, but they had an inefficient powertrain, so they're going to want to change things. BMW won't be happy that its technical partnership with Andretti resulted in just a handful of points finishes this season. Um, Dragon Racing went from being right at the front to right at the back with Faraday, so that will need to be resolved. And obviously one of the you know the the big thing really is what's Jaguar going to do in its second season next season uh, Lucas joked about this last week he said Formula e, like Formula e is only getting harder it's got harder every season the drivers are getting better the teams are getting more professional there are more manufacturers coming in it's getting harder and harder to win so he's very very thankful that he's got one now <laughs> and of course we should say from Alex's perspective because we're expecting him to hopefully try and get a drive so of course he'll be number one next year that's what he should have said goes without saying Scott <laughs> every driver thinks they should be number one that's in the dna of the racing driver isn't it well unless anybody has any other business they want to raise any any topics we haven't talked about maybe they want to talk a bit more about esteban gutierrez i think we've covered the the championship season just completed uh, and the the state of the whole thing pretty well so thanks very much to my guests nikki shields alex lynn and scott mitchell and just urge everybody to check out oldsport.com for our in-depth coverage of Formula E and all the other racing categories around the world, including Formula One and our Autosport Plus subscriber area for in-depth features and, and analysis. Autosport magazine's out every Thursday. The August the 17th issue, which is on the shelves now, has Scott Mitchell's controversial season review and driver top 10, so you can read that and complain at him over social media. So uh, thanks for joining us. We'll be back soon with another Autosport podcast. Music is 6am by Trilo, written by Marcus Simmons. See soundcloud.com forward slash Trilo Music. redeemed a $50,000 cash prize playing Chumba Casino this year. I was only playing for fun, so winning this was a dream come true. Chumba Casino is America's number one social casino experience. It's serious fun. With over 80 casino-style games to choose from, you too could win life-changing amounts of cash. Be like Mary. Log on to ChumbaCasino.com and give them a whirl. That's ChumbaCasino.com. No purchase necessary. Void or prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. The voice in the preceding commercial was not the actual voice of a winner. The world is waiting, waiting for new thinking, for bold ideas that embrace a globally connected community, working together to create a better future for all. And that future, it can be found here at UC Riverside. Bold hearts, brilliant minds. Sports Social Podcast Network. 
With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details.